consider that one of our dangerous songs if we actually believed it. First of all, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for coming this morning. Uh, obviously, Mother's Day has taken a lot of our people away. People are home visiting their uh, mothers amongst our students, even though they're in the midst of finals. I'm glad they're where they're at, but I'm glad you're here as well. And uh, the mother in our household uh, is gone. Um, she has uh, escorted our oldest daughter back to uh, California in car. She just finished a four-day trip yesterday, so we're going to postpone our little celebrations when she gets back later on this week, and uh, I miss her, but I'll be glad when she gets back. My lesson uh, this morning is not uh, specifically a Mother's Day sermon, because I'm going to continue in the series on James. If you read the email I sent out earlier this week, uh, certainly what I'm going to talk about should resonate with mothers. We know they are this. Patient. Now, I don't want to try your patience in time, so let me launch. And we'll begin with this. Um, A commonality, at least I hope it is. Uh, Certainly you've had an experience like this. I've gone to a restaurant during a rush hour, and I had to wait a long time to be seated. And then I had to wait a long time to get the menu. And then I had to wait a lot longer time to make my order. And then I had to wait a lot longer time to get the food than I should have had. And then I sat there with an empty Coke drink while I'm still eating and I'm very thirsty waiting for the refill. And then I had to wait a long time after I got through with the meal to get my check. And I had to wait a long time to get the receipt from the check and the credit card. And the amazing thing is to me that the person who's making me do all this waiting is called a... Waiter! And he wants a tip, and I'm doing all the waiting. But I guess that's how life is, so we all have to learn to be patient. Well, you know the adage, uh, uh, it pays to be patient. It did not pay for my meal. But if that's true, then perhaps that's why there's so many poor people in the world. Which, by the way, is specifically exactly who James is addressing in our text this morning. The poor. So let's pick up in chapter 5, verse 7. As we enter in, what is, to James, the last major section in this letter? Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rain. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets, who spoke the name of the Lord. As you uh, know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance. And have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, brothers, do not swear by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Or you'll be condemned. Now, before uh, 
we go further, let's not divorce this text from its context. Remember last time, we looked at the first six verses of chapter 5. James talked about what? About how the wealthy, the rich, were oppressing the poor. They were depriving them of their just wages. They were cheating them in the court. They, it was lethal to some of these people. And a few things that put faith to the test are worse than having to deal with the experience of injustice. Now, what's the natural reaction to uh, injustice? Well, it's to set the record straight. It's to retaliate. But the direction that James points us here is patience. Six times out of these six verses, James uses either the word patient or perseverance. Now, the root of of, the idea of uh, patience carries the idea of waiting with calm expectancy. And so I guess perseverance, if you will, would be patience stretched out. Now, in other words, on your outlines, patience is more than passive resistance. It's not just going along for the ride. But it's a courageous refusal not to quit on God. We'll play that out. Now, I also want you to notice that four times in this text, if noticed in the emphasis of the reading, he says, brothers. He talks specifically to us. And he keeps saying, brothers, 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 sisters. And that's because the advice he is giving is obviously uniquely uh, uh, played out amongst those who claim to be followers of Jesus. First of all, because what we're talking about here is a resolve that we know is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Our struggle, you see, is that we often quench the Spirit in our lives and in our hearts. Philip Brooks, a well-known preacher up in New England back in the the, the 1800s, one day he was... Uh, around some of the people that he knew. They knew him well. He knew he wasn't like this, but he was really frustrated. Uh, He was a bit anxious. And someone finally asked him, what is wrong with you? And he said, well, the problem is I'm in a hurry and God is not. Well, you know, I guess it's not automatic. It's not axiomatic. That is, uh, just because you have the Spirit doesn't mean you're going to be patient. We have to cooperate with the Spirit in our lives. But what it does mean also is that we have the resources of the Spirit to lean upon. You don't do this on your own. Now, let me just pause here and, and reflect back, because James is already taken here, and I don't really expect you to remember this, because this was a long time ago. But really, in the first or second lesson, this is what James talked about. Back in chapter 1, remember, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various uh, sundry colors and kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and perseverance must have, you know, must complete its work. Now, you and I may not like God's strategy for developing character. It grinds us at times. But if you think about it, we just can't get on to the business of becoming more like Jesus without being patient. And we can't become more patient unless we have some life experiences that demand it from us. Beth Moore put it this way, if we choose comfort to motivate us, we risk our calling. 
But I think a second reason that patience is uniquely Christian is because it's fueled by a radical outlook on life. You'll note that James uh, places patience in a setting of what is called eschatology. I don't expect you know what that is, but basically it is, it is viewing life through the end times. Filtering your life by looking at what's going to happen when it's all said and done. Eschatology. And what James specifically refers to is the parousia, referring to the second coming of Jesus. You notice he keeps planning that in this text. Not a coincidence. Now, I think for many Christians, the idea that Jesus is actually going to come back again is one of those pieces of our belief that kind of dangles out there but doesn't really have any correlation to our life every day. Do you like that? But James wants you to connect the dots. What we need to grasp, you see, if you understand eschatology, is that that it rises out of the clash between our faith in a loving God and the harsh realities of a ruthless world. That's what makes it bridge. In other words, it's what keeps us oriented as we face the hard questions and inconsistencies of this life. F.B. Myers put it, don't judge the Lord on his unfinished work. So what James is asking us to do here is to bring some spiritual realities to, to bear upon our circumstances. Jesus is coming back. Now, people in times of trouble naturally hope for release from this world, especially in the form of Christ's return. And certainly the severe abuses that James is dealing with in his day, as one person put it, created a, a, a burgeoning eschatological excitement in every weary heart. But on your outlines, understand James employs the second coming of Jesus not as a way of escape, but as a way to grow. That is, James desires to shift our attention away from what's happening now to what God is forming in us now. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is no escape here. Now, it's said that if you squeeze a Christian, what's on the inside comes to the outside. Well, as these poor Christians were having to endure the lethal indifference of the wealthy, what James was witnessing, perhaps, was how some of these struggling poor Christians were showing some signs that they were kind of coming, becoming disoriented with their walk with God. And it showed up in a few ways that he's going to point out here. And in keeping with how often James talks about the things we say, the use of the tongue, it shouldn't surprise us that the two struggles he points to here also have to do with what we say. The first of those is grumbling. Now, you know what strikes me about this as James is kind of talking to these people? That even the justifiable anger for what these poor people were suffering laid them open to judgment. Why? Because he says, the judge is standing at the door. He's, he's only a hair's breadth away. Translate. In other words, on your outlines, we either wait upon the Lord for justice or we'll be tempted to turn on each other. You see how that works? I mean, haven't you noticed how much griping and bickering accompany waiting? 
It's just so easy to allow the frustrations that we have in life over our circumstances to poison our relationships with other people. And that's exactly where Jesus takes us in Matthew 7. You know the text. It's misused a lot, but this is how he's supposed to use it. Do not judge or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you dole out, it will be measured to you. Now, the dangers here of our, in pointing to our relationships is that he's, I think he's speaking both inside the community of believers and outside. Internally, as you look in, whenever Christians are under pressure, we need to protect our unity. That is, don't allow the pressures from the outside to cause us to take it out on each other on the inside. Looking out, don't allow bitterness and resentment to poison our relationship with the very people that we're supposed to reach. It's a legend. It's a story told about uh, the patriarch Abraham, not in the Bible. That one day Abraham saw a man coming down a road who was tired and weary, and so he invited this man into his tent, and he washed his feet, and he gave him some food to eat, and... But he noticed that as the man started to, to you know, get into the meal, that he, he didn't stop and say a prayer, thanking God for the food. And so Abraham says, uh, don't you pray to God before your meals? And the guy says, uh, uh, look, I uh, revere no God but fire and none other. Well, Abraham got a bit incensed at that, so he grabbed the guy and he tossed him out of the tent. Later on, the Lord talked to Abraham, and he says, where's that old man I sent you away? He says, well, I threw him out because he doesn't worship you. And God says, well, that's true. But I put up with him for 80 years, and you couldn't endure him for one day? Have you ever considered, in all honesty, how patient God is with each and every one of us each and every day. The second breakdown he points to, he used the idea of swearing, taking oaths. Now, it seems like one of those, like a proverb, just kind of dangles out there by itself, like he just took a little hiatus and just says, let me tell you a little bit about this and we'll come back to the story. There's a context here, and I think he's associating something here. So remember that the context is dealing with situations where we have to deal with patience. And so I think where James leads us here is this. During tough times, we are tempted to invoke the name of God um, irresponsibly, arrogantly. For example, Lord, if you'll get me out of this, I promise to. Or I swear to God, if I ever find out who did this, as though God is going to somehow be your patron of revenge. Maybe we just cut to the chase. God, just damn them. Well, of course, on the most basic level, swearing is an integrity issue. Because if you're constantly relying on props to create credibility for yourself, you're suggesting that some of your speech is more believable than other speech. Something we all struggle with. But you should be, you know, trusted for your character, not just for your, you know, your expletives, right? 
But I think the second problem, and it's more to the point here, on your outlines, we take oaths, that is, we call upon God, thinking that we can dictate to God the, the, the terms of our deliverance. You see? These oppressed Christians were in a situation of waiting and frustration, and they thought somehow that by calling on God's name that they could in some way obligate God to fix it quicker. And if he doesn't, then I'm going to change how I see God. Now, here James gives us three illustrations. And they're filters to get to where he wants us to be. The first is the farmer. The farmer, notice, has to be patient when the circumstances are uncontrollable. No farmer can have a harvest just whenever he wants it. The farmer works really hard to see that things happen, but then he has to wait expectantly on events that are ab- that he's absolutely helpless to control. Specifically, the farmers there in the eastern Mediterranean relied upon two seasons of rain. And James mentions it. He wants you to think about this. It goes somewhere. That they would plant the seeds while waiting or in the midst of the autumn rains. And then, while still having to work to cultivate their crops, they had to wait for the spring rains. That, by the way, would come just before the harvest. Now, there's more to it than just reading that and saying, okay, I've got to wait around a little bit. You see, those who lived in desert, arid places like this knew the remarkable effects of a single rain. That is, a season could change in a day as right before their eyes they could see the crops come back to life. Right before the harvest. But between the rains, while still hoping for the spring rains to come, when it looked hopeless because everything looked so dry and brittle, while having to really invest a lot of hard work, psychologically it was really tough. And so James is telling them and us, I know it's hard because sometimes it looks like nothing is happening. Now, it's true. There's nothing we can do to make Jesus come quicker. Although, you know, it's okay to ask. You know, it's in Revelation, Lord, come quickly. But perhaps not for the motives that we think. But we can't make Jesus come back more quickly. So between the rains, I think the first rain has come in the cross. God started to set things right. But he's not finished yet. That we just have to wait patiently for God to come again and to set things completely right. You see, if we really believe that God is active, then I guess we will actively wait. The second illustration is the prophets. The prophets, notice, had to be patient when people were irredeemable. Now, James anticipates that the readers know something about the prophets, so in case you don't know, every single one of them had to suffer a lot of injustice to represent God. None of it was fair. 
In fact, it is such a primary defining moment about suffering that it's mentioned 11 times in the New Testament, the prophet's suffering, and most of those were by Jesus himself. And so what do the prophets teach us? Well, the obvious is that bad things can happen to good people. But not only that, it also teaches me where I tend to struggle with is that suffering is not distributed evenly to all people. Now, the question is, why does God, uh, God does not cause this. Why does God permit this? That life can be kind of shuffled up and dealt out the way it is. And everyone gets such a radically different hand. as we face, you know, the economies of life. Well, consider this, just for thought, as believers. Besides the issue of character development, which James has been hammering out all letter, I think one reason is to give our message even more credibility. In other words, our message is going to have staying power in a culture that's marginalizing Christianity when they see that we, too, have staying power with God. And that means a lot more than just showing up to church every Sunday. You tell me, who are non-believers going to listen to? And yet it's suggested that we're virtually ignored today. Thirdly, He points, obviously, to Job. Job had to be patient, which I think was probably the most difficult thing, and that is when the problems were unexplainable. Job had no idea why his life cratered in the way it did. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Job, you're thinking, yeah, but he sure did grumble a lot. But you're also supposed to realize that Job's complaints... They were born out of faith. That is, Job remained faithful to the picture he had of God, that God is somehow, even in the midst of all this, loving and just. What he's really questioning, you see, is the accuracy of the picture of what he's having to suffer through. In other words, how do you harmonize what you know what God is like with what you're going through? You get the idea. There's a difference. Now, we all know how the story ends, don't we? Job ended up with a great deal more than he began with, and he began with a lot. And so after all is said and done, Job is a beautiful foreshadowing of what God does for patient people. God rewards those who wait upon him. Yes, it does pay to be patient. Well, before I close, let me take you to two places where I know James wants you to go in this text. And these are tough. I want to look, first of all, out at each other and then look, you know, kind of out there. Well, up there. First of all, looking out at each other. 
Do I need to tell you this? It's on your outlines. Forgiving others is one of the most difficult things that God demands of us. Janet Peary, in her novel, uh, she's an award-winning novelist. She's a professor at Wichita State, wrote this award-winning novel entitled uh, The River Beyond the World. It kind of touches on this theme of uh, forgiveness. And um, the novel is about, uh, just a quick setting, about a little girl by the name of Louisa. And um, she lived with her mother and her aunt, Chavella. And Chavella, the aunt, is often very cruel, especially toward Louisa. Now, I want you to listen to this brief exchange between Louisa and her mother as they talk about this. Once when her mother was grinding corn, Louisa asked why Chavella was so mean. Hearts are made two ways, her mother said. Some are full with what they are given, no matter how small. And others can't forget what they can't have. She's mean, Louisa insisted, and that's a sin. Her mother stopped to cool the mano. That's that rock she's holding as she's working on the matate. Then sprinkled kernels on the matate and blew on them to give them courage. She shook her head. Forgive her. She never asks. Her mother shook her arms and resumed rolling the corn crunched between the stones. All the more reason. Now, we've all been there with Louisa in that she's justified in her anger toward in this case, her aunt, because Chevella is cruel and she's undeserving. And so it would seem kind of unnatural, wouldn't it, for Louisa to just forgive her. And yet there's a godly wisdom in her mother's counsel that I think resonates with where James is trying to take us, and it's a hard place. When James warns the poor against taking judgment into their own hands, in essence, he's asking them to love their enemies not in abstract ways, but in very concrete ways. It's like Eric Hoffer, who uh, uh, he was the San Francisco longshoreman turned philosopher back in the 60s, and he made this observation. He said, it's easier to love humanity than to love your neighbor. Now, one of the things that's striking in this passage to me is that the wealthy who have exploited and even killed some of the poor, they haven't asked for forgiveness. In fact, they probably have absolutely no notion of those that they have harmed. And yet James urges these victims to suspend their judgment to initiate Forgiveness. But isn't that supposed to be one of the profound impacts that grace is supposed to have on our lives? I've used this quote before by William Blake The glory of Christianity is to conquer through forgiveness. 
If we don't forgive, Christianity loses. I think Lewis Smedes, in his book, Forgive and Forget, Healing the Hurt We Don't Deserve, uh, he kind of, well, hear what he has to say. None of us wants to admit that we hate someone. When we deny our hate, we detour around the crisis of forgiveness. We suppress spite, we make adjustments, and we make believe that we're just too good to be hateful. But the truth is, we do not dare to risk admitting the hate we feel because we do not dare to risk forgiving the person we hate. Forgive. The only way we as Christians are going to survive in a culture that has marginalized us is to forgive. Now look up, metaphorically. When James tells us that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy, James is not offering some misguided therapy thinking that he can hoodwink people into believing things are better than they really are. People were hurting in this text, and James knew it. And so with a gentle turn, James wants us to know a couple things. First of all, that God's timing and priorities are different than ours. And without explanation, we just have to trust him anyway. But underlying that is this on your outlines. God doesn't enjoy watching his people suffer. God is not like that. The only way I know for we Christians to survive in our culture today, as we're being increasingly marginalized, is to learn to trust. Haven't you noticed in our culture, Christians are dropping out like flies? Just keeping up a good habit of showing up here is not going to cut it in the culture that we enter into. We've got to learn to trust. It was 586 B.C. The Babylonians had just marched in to Jerusalem and razed it to the ground. Razed as in absolute wreckage and destruction. One of the people left behind in all this wreckage was the prophet Jeremiah. By the way, he's known as the weeping prophet. For good reason. He earned it. Before the Babylonians showed up, ironically, he had just been cast into a cistern, a well, as punishment. Because the people didn't want to hear him talk about how Babylon was coming to punish him. Had they only listened. And now all he could see were destroyed homes and dead bodies and a growing list of missing people. I mean, it really is hard to imagine. But nevertheless, he chose to cling to the picture 
of what he believed God to, God to be like. And so rather than abandon that picture, Jeremiah poured out these words, which, by the way, we sing a song based on. As it's rendered in the message, notice it comes out of lament, not triumph. But there is one thing I remember, and remembering I keep a grip on hope. God's loyal love could not have run out. His merciful love could not have dried up. They're created new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I'm sticking with God. I say it over and over. He's all I've got left. God proves to be good to the man who passionately waits, to the woman who diligently seeks. It's a good thing to quietly hope, quietly hope for help from God. You see, these words were not born out of tranquility, some nice little lake scene sitting there thinking nice thoughts. This is not based on naivety. And that's why we can cling to these words this morning. And why what James has to say really has substance. And we can cling to that too. Well, if we can help you in any way as a family this morning, we want to encourage you to feel free to come forward now as we stand and as we sing.